Corinthians. We got most of the way through chapter 14 last time. So we'll finish up chapter 15, and then we go into resurrection, and God only knows how long that's going to take. What's been going on before, one is by background. There's obviously a lot of junk going on in the church in Corinth. One of the things is there's apparently a great deal of hubris involved with spiritual gifts. Those people who have been given spiritual gifts have exalted themselves above their neighbors because I've got gift X, Y, or Z and you don't. Apparently speaking in tongues has become contentious. So Paul, in the first part of chapter 14, talks about speaking in tongues. And then he'll continue here and he'll talk some more about order in the service. From the tone of it, I get the impression that things are kind of disorderly in the Corinthian church. We've had, for example, the Lord's Supper when people come together on Shabbat or whenever they come together and share meals. The rich ones are having a big meal and getting drunk and so forth, and the poor ones are going hungry. So Paul upbraids them for that. So now we come down to order of worship. So we're in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And again, he's talked, remember, in the case of speaking in tongues, that if someone wants to speak in an unknown tongue during a service, he should only do so if there's someone there to interpret. Otherwise, you just have noise. And he would much rather that people prophesy than speak in tongues. And the whole point of this is all of the gifts are for building up the body. So verse 27 now. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. I'm sort of getting the impression that it was a cacophony and just lots of babble going on, and nobody knew what was going on. And again, the overarching problem that this church has is pride. So if someone is speaking in tongues or thinks he's speaking in tongues, he wants to show everybody that he speaks in tongues. So you have everybody exercising his gift willy-nilly, and nothing gets understood. Verse 28, But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So the idea here is if you have what you believe is a prophetic revelation in a given meeting, a couple, three of those is quite enough. And if someone thinks that he has a revelation, the one who was speaking before should be silent in the face of that and let that person speak. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. All right, stop there for a minute. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. One of the things that happens in charismatic churches or in churches in general is people will get taken over. In other words, they'll start going off in an unknown tongue and you try and bring them into order. and Oh, I can't help it. Uh, what I have said and what Paul is saying here is you're not dealing with the Holy Spirit in that case, you're dealing with a demon. And as I said last time about speaking in tongues, 
I am in complete control of whether or not I speak in an unknown tongue. I can stop it when I want to. I can start it when I want to. It is under my control. The only thing that is not under my control is the words that come out. But I can decide whether I want to do that or not. And what he's saying here is if someone can't make that decision and is just asserting that, oh, it's got to come out and I can't do anything about it, then you're not dealing with the Holy Spirit. Verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And the idea there is if you've got everybody babbling in an unknown tongue and nobody there to interpret, what you have is confusion. So the second half of verse 33 now, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Nobody has any idea what he's talking about here. And there's no prohibition in Torah against a woman speaking in church. Certainly, we don't prohibit women from speaking in church. The commentary I read said what may be going on is disorder. People talking and being out of order. And this may be directed at married women who may be chattering with their husbands while other things are going on and so forth. And what he's saying here is, all right, ladies, if you got a husband, be quiet. Have your conversation with him at home not in the meeting. Nobody's quite sure what he's talking about. So do with that whatever you like. I don't know what he's talking about either, as I say. The only thing that even remotely bears on it is Eve being the wife of Adam. In, in Genesis 3, after the fall, it specifically says that the husband is going to be the leader and the wife is going to be number two, and the wife is not going to like it. So that may be what he's talking about, but as far as I know, there isn't any prohibition anywhere in the Torah against women speaking. I will tell you what our halaha is. Things like preaching and reading the Torah, doing owning. I think those are the big ones. Or male. Women are perfectly free to dance, lead dance. Women pray out loud during the set prayers that we do first. That's all fine. But we've decided that preaching, owning, and readings of the Torah are male. And elders are also male. But again, with elders, we bring in the husband and wife team because elders have to be married. In this church, we have decided that we will be led by married men. That's what we decided when we set the place up, and that's the way it is. So we're down to 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only one it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are the command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So this little vignette about women is tucked in the middle of a rebuke about hubris. And I don't know what was in that letter that set him off on women, but there was something. But the whole thing is a call for humility and a call for order. And so there's something going on with the women that has caused him to make that comment. I don't know what it is. All right, so now we're down to chapter 15. 
Now it gets fun. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you was believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God, that is with me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach and so we believe. Verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith in vain. So let's back up. First off, Somebody is teaching them, or teaching in the church, or opining that there is no resurrection of the dead. That's obviously what he's reacting to. In the sects of Judaism, the Sadducees do not believe in resurrection of the dead. So there's a major sect of Judaism that does not believe in resurrection of the dead. It is entirely possible that you had some Sadducees with a three-day pass and a briefcase come through there and say, no, 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 you guys are all wrong. There's no resurrection. That's entirely possible. It is also possible that somebody has brought in pagan beliefs. Because remember, one of the things that happens to the Gentile church, the Sunday church, however you want to call it, is a whole lot of pagan beliefs that have come into the church that are not consistent with Jewish beliefs. So, for example, Ray, a couple weeks ago, when he gave a sermon, talked about the idea that you become a disembodied soul. That's not Hebrew. That's Greek. The Greek idea is that, one of the Greek ideas, there are a number of them, is that the soul has been trapped on the earth. That your job is to get free and become a free-floating spirit. Same thing in some of the Eastern religions. You know, the idea that you want to get off the wheel, you know, we're doing reincarnation, and as you get better at being a human being, you get reincarnated higher and higher, and at some point you get free, and you're free of the material, and you become a disembodied spirit. That is not Hebrew. So I'm not sure what the source of the questioning of the resurrection is in this church. As I said, there could be a couple of them. It could be Sadducean belief. It could also be paganism that has, has slipped in there. I'm going to talk about resurrection and what that means. I'm going to need to say some more of his stuff rather than bouncing back and forth. So the first thing he did then is he presents evidence that there was a resurrection. He said, Yeshua has appeared to me. He's also appeared to hundreds of other people who are alive. It's sort of a standard reference is if I were to tell you that JFK was driving through a tunnel and a landmine blew him up, 
and that's how he died, you would all look at me like, what? Because you were alive when JFK was killed. You know what happened. Now, exclusive of conspiracy theories, but the point is, his assassination happened on television, and everybody knows that his car didn't hit a landmine. But you understand what I'm saying. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, Yeshua, his death was witnessed. He was put into the tomb. He rose again on the third day. And he was seen by hundreds of people, most of whom are still alive. So this is the first thing that Paul is saying. I got witnesses that he was raised from the dead. Let's go down to verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every ruler of authority and power. All right, stop there for a minute. That, that's what I wanted to get on the record. Two things. Christ is the first fruits, and Adam caused us all by his sin to become mortal. And Christ, by the acceptance of his sacrifice and the being raised from the dead, has given us all the ability to become immortal. Now, he's going to talk about the seeds and planting, you know, the body that you plant is a seed and all that kind of stuff, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But the first thing I want to establish, which is to talk about for a minute, is this idea that Adam died for his sins. But everybody thereafter also dies, even if they do not commit the sin that Adam committed. The way I describe that is when Adam sinned, he himself became mortal, and he passed on that mortality to his progeny. So even if you live a perfect life and do not sin against God, you are still mortal, and you are still going to die. Good behavior does not cancel out mortality. Yeshua is a perfect example of that because he is a child of Adam. One of his titles that he refers to himself all the time is the Son of Man. And as the Son of Man, he died, even though... Scripture does not record anywhere that he was sinful. In fact, Scripture says he wasn't sinful. Yet he was a man, and he was mortal, and he died. So the first thing to understand is good behavior does not cancel out mortality. Second thing to understand, there have been quite a number of people raised from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Paul raised one from the dead. Elijah and Elijah, between them, raised three people from the dead. It's a big deal. It's not, it's not a common occurrence. But being raised from the dead does not make you then immortal. It does not confer immortality to anybody. So a significant number of people have been raised from the dead. They are not the Messiah, and their resurrection 
does not confer on humanity immortality. Yeshua, on the other hand, being the Son of God and the Son of Man, when he dies and is raised from the dead, he ascends into heaven and he gets a resurrection body. Because remember, when he came back, he would do things like just sort of appear in the middle of a locked room. And scripture attests that he would just show up places, which is not something that Lazarus ever did. So the fact that he has a resurrection body and the fact that he is the first fruits. So he is the first human who dies and is raised to a resurrection body and to immortality. So that makes him the first fruits. And just as Adam was the first fruits of all who died, he is the first fruits of all who are going to live. Same mechanism applies, if you will. Adam causes us to be mortal, and everybody after Adam is mortal, no matter how well behaved. Christ, with the resurrection body, is immortal. And everyone who eats of his flesh and drinks of his blood will inherit that immortality in the world to come. So all of us who believe in Messiah, if he doesn't come back first, are going to experience physical death. But we do so in the knowledge that we are going to get a resurrection body, and in the world to come, we will be immortal. So the first thing that we're establishing here is the resurrection of Messiah as the first fruits is the same thing as the death of Adam as the first of the dead, and his resurrection and ascension is what demonstrates that. That's thing one. Now, verse 24, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What he's talking about there is the millennial reign. So what it says is, when Christ returns, he is going to reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And when he does that, he then is going to present the kingdom to God. And when it says all things under his feet, it means all things except God, because God is the one who puts everything under his feet, so God is not going under his feet. That's what the argument is. So what we call God the Father is going to be superior to God the Son, but God the Son is going to put everything to include death under his own feet, and when that is complete, he will present the kingdom to God the Father. That's what we call the millennial reign in Revelation. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Nobody has any idea what he's talking about there. Well, the Mormons now do that. But that's, that's a fairly recent thing, and the Mormons were not extant during Paul's time. The Mormons do baptism on behalf of the dead. I don't know why, perhaps here, because he doesn't say it as in, you stupid people, why are you baptizing folks? And it's sort of like, oh yeah, this happens, and if there's no resurrection, then why are they doing that? I mean, that's just sort of the sense of the question. If there's no resurrection, then why are people bothering to baptize for the dead? This is the only place that I know of that's mentioned. Nobody's quite sure what it means. Again, it may be 
paganism that has slipped into the church, but I know of nothing in Tanakh that would indicate that that was a useful thing to do. Now, what he may be doing, and this is speculation now, because remember, we don't know why some believe that there's no resurrection. And so we don't have the other half of this correspondence. All we know is that there are people who don't believe in the resurrection, and apparently they are proselytizing and pushing that viewpoint. So Paul is saying, wait a minute, that's not right. And oh, by the way, if it were right, then why are those same people baptizing for the dead? In other words, it may be the same group. That's speculation on my part, though. Anybody ever seen anybody that has inconsistent theological positions? And so it is entirely possible that somebody might believe that there's no resurrection and also believe that being baptized on the behalf of the dead was useful somehow. I'm speculating. So 29 again. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Messiah Yeshua, your Lord, our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? The dead are not raised. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I believe Paul is one of those people that was raised from the dead because he was stoned. And I am perfectly comfortable with him being raised from the dead. But the point is, he's saying, I have been persecuted, I have been stoned, etc. And what am I doing if this is all for nothing? If once we die, we die. Why am I going through all this? It would be much wiser for me to adopt an Epicurean philosophy, which is Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And he's saying, I'm going through all of this because of my belief in the resurrection and because of my belief in life after death. So now we come to the fun part, 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. All right, come back to the seed metaphor now. If I were to take and show you an acorn, you happen to know what an oak tree looks like. But looking at an acorn, you do not see an oak tree. It's only after being planted and growing up that the acorn becomes an oak tree. So what he's saying here is the seed that you are planting, which is the body that is going into the grave, doesn't give you any idea what the resurrected body is going to look like, just as an acorn doesn't give you any idea what an oak tree looks like. That's the argument he's making. We have one example, Yeshua. Now, 
when he appeared to the disciples, for example, Thomas, and he says, stick your hand in my side. Look at the nail prints on my hands. So that would indicate that he was very recognizable after death. But then go to John, Revelation, where he hears this voice behind him and he turns around and just hits the deck because the being that is standing in front of him doesn't look anything like the one that was crucified. He has hair as white as snow, all sorts of radiance. The other part of that is the body that gets planted in the grave decays. The only thing that survives is the information that is you. And how God does that, I do not know. But it's like when your computer dies and you take your backup to a new set of hardware. I think maybe Chuck Missler gives that. He had an old computer that he'd been using for years, and we all have them. We have this one program that we're really used to. So anyway, he has this story where he had a computer that finally physically died. And so he got a new computer, and he installed his old program, and it was still the old program, but it launched that fast, and zip, and it was in full color, and it was just a completely different experience, even though it was the same old program. So the program transferred, the hardware was better, it was the analogy that he uses. Anyway, the point that Paul is making is, just as you cannot tell what an oak tree looks like if all you have is an acorn, so you will not be able to tell what your resurrection body is going to look like based on what you see in front of you now. So we're all the way down to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. And again, if you plant your acorn or your grain of wheat or whatever, as the stalk of wheat or the tree grows up, the original acorn disappears. You can't go down and dig down after a certain period of time and find that acorn. It's gone. It's been consumed. It's perishable. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. And the example I would use there is we tend to plant seeds in manure and not being flip. You get planted in the earth. We plant seeds in the manure. So in 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and that's in Genesis. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So all the way to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, and O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So the idea is there will be some who will be raised from the dead, and according to Thessalonians, there will be some who will not see physical death. They will just simply be transformed. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Yeshua Messiah. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And this, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Adam perished because of disobedience. And the Torah, which is given to us for our benefit, also makes us aware when we rebel. In other words, if we're just going off doing our own thing, not realizing that our own thing is contrary to what God would have us do, then we are mortal in innocence. We are innocently mortal, is another way to describe it. We're still mortal. We're still going to die. But we haven't done anything worthy of anything other than that. However, once we understand the law, the Torah, then the things that we do become things that we're responsible for. There's a story. A missionary in the American West was talking to an Indian chief. And the Indian chief said, you're telling me that because I didn't know this God of yours, and because I didn't know his law, then I was innocent of sin. And the missionary said, yeah. And the Indian said, then why did you tell me? It's a good question. And the answer to that is because the Torah tells you, A, how to relate to God, and B, tells you how his universe works. And the way I would describe that is, let's say you have a 12-year-old boy, and you go down to the Broncos game, and you put a small helmet and pads on him and say, go get him, Tiger. And he runs out into the middle of the field with all those big guys and doesn't have any idea of what the rules are. He's going to get creamed because he doesn't understand the rules. So the Torah and the rules are given to us for our benefit. But the flip side of that is they make us responsible for the things we do. And that's what Paul is saying here. We're down to verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable always, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, as you are in God's kingdom and you are on God's side, God takes notice of what you do. Chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as you may prosper, so that there will be no collection when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seem advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So notice he's not saying, collect some money for me and I will take it to Jerusalem. He says, collect a gift for Jerusalem and then you decide who you want to have take it there. And if it seems advisable, I'll go along. But the idea is you're not collecting the money for me and you're not trusting me to take it to Jerusalem and perhaps take a cut. You're collecting the money, your people are going to take it, 
so forth. And one of the things early in the letter is it seemed to be somebody was accusing him of profiting from the gospel. You know, being a prosperity preacher, you know, one of these preachers that has a private jet and Rolexes and white suits, and that seems to have been one of the accusations that was leveled against Paul. So this idea of, okay, collect charity for Jerusalem, and then you take it there. Verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. This letter indicates that there's some serious problems in this church. And the idea is, I'm not going to get them all corrected in one letter. So I'd really like to come and spend some time with you. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you and the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, to know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and labor. In other words, what he's saying is, Stephanus is a trustworthy pastor. He is someone that you can trust and be subject to such as these. In other words, people who know what they're doing. Verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours, give recognition to such men. So apparently those three men had come to Paul, probably bearing a letter, and he saying he enjoyed spending time with them, and they are, again, trustworthy people. 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Achilla and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord, Yeshua, be with you. My love be with you all. And Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Thus endeth the letter.